Welcome to Done and Done, the podcast all things Dominic Dunn. I'm Alicia, your host, and in this first episode, we are going to cover the author in his first act. Dominic Dunn has a whole life, five and a half decades of a life, before he becomes a prolific writer of fiction and true crime. How does Dominic get to that second act that we most remember him for? Let's investigate. Dominic John Dunn was born October 29th, 1925. Dominic is the second of six children in a well-to-do Irish Catholic family that will live in a big gray stone house in the best part of town within the hamlet of Hartford, Connecticut. Even from the age of four, Dominic knows Hartford is not his scene, and he grows up never quite feeling like he belongs. Dominic's dad, Richard Edwin Dunn, is a big-time heart surgeon. He's president of a hospital. Dad is pioneering heart surgery innovations decades before heart transplants actually become a thing. Dad's kind of a big deal and does very well by marrying Dorothy Frances Burns. Dorothy is from a very wealthy Irish Catholic family. Dominic will describe her, at least in Irish Catholic circles, as being considered a bit of an heiress. Irish Catholic girl, early 20th century? How does she get to be considered a bit of an heiress? Dorothy's father, Dominic Burns, was a potato famine immigrant who comes to the United States when he's 14 years old and makes good, experiences the American dream. Grandpa, Dominic, begins in the grocery store business as a teenager and ends up transforming much like his grandson with a whole new career. Grandpa Dominic will become a bank president of the Park Street Trust Company. Dominic says that when they were kids, they stressed the bank president part of grandpa's life rather than the grocery store business part of grandpa's life. But grandpa Dominic is legendary. He's made a knight of St. Gregory by Pope Pius XII for his philanthropic work for the poor of Hartford, a public school in a section of the city known as Frog Hollow which is the old Irish section of town, is named for him as well. Granddad becomes really important to both Dominic and Dominic's younger brother, John Gregory, growing up. All the Dunn kids call him Papa, and Dominic will describe Papa as an extraordinary man. Even though he didn't have any formal schooling past the age of 14, Papa is never without a book. Literature is his obsession. And Papa, Grandpa, is going to pass on the love and excitement of reading early to both Dominic and John Gregory. Sleepovers are common on Friday nights at Grandpa's home, and to earn 50 cents, which was quite a bit of money in those days, says Dominic, both Dominic and John would happily be bribed to listen to Papa read to them. Classics, poetry, if Papa was reading and paying out those two shiny quarters, Dominic and John were listening. Why aren't the boys reading to Papa instead, you may be asking. Both kids are stutterers growing up and will attend lessons with elocution teacher Alice J. Buckley. Dominic says she must have been good because they stopped stuttering years ago. Now, this childhood may sound idyllic. 
important family, the priests come to dinner every week, the right people, the right connections. But again, Dominic never really belonging. I'm fairly certain much of this is fully reinforced by his father, the big-time heart surgeon, hero of the medical world, who will come home and take his own feelings out on his kids, Dominic especially. Dominic will say there was something about him his dad just hated. His father will mimic him. He will call him a sissy. And even Dominic in his last decade will talk about this and that hurt that he still can feel over that word. He says it's a word that hurts and lingers. It can linger for a lifetime. Dominic's opinion of himself is nothing because he believes everything dad's saying about him. This abuse is not only verbal but physical and will continue through Dominic's teenage years where he will make a solemn vow never to cry because of his father again. In addition to Papa Grandpa, though, there are a few other positive influences on Dominic's life to balance out the terrible influence of dad. Let's talk about Aunt Harriet. Aunt Harriet is Mama Dorothy's sister. And Aunt Harriet is a maiden lady who lives out in California. Aunt Harriet is also a former Catholic nun who quit the convent. Mom and Dad Dunn never discuss Harriet's break from the convent, but the kids talk about it all the time. When Dominic is about nine, the family takes a trip to the West Coast. See the sights, and sure, we'll visit Harriet. Let's go to Los Angeles. And little nine-year-old Dominic Dunn is starstruck. This is the kid who collects movie fan magazines, not baseball cards. And whatever those movie magazines prints, he believes it all. He's hooked. And now, here is the starry-eyed kid seeing Schwab's, where Lana Turner was not actually discovered, and taking the tour bus on the journey by all the homes of the famous stars, and Dominic will sit next to the guide so he won't miss a second of any of the juicy scoop. It turns out Dominic knows more about the star's lives than the tour guide does, although the tour guide is familiar with all the star's current addresses. There is a lunch at the Brown Derby, and they go to all the L.A. spots, and this trip will really imprint in this young kid's imagination as he begins his journey in life. Summer must end, and back to Hartford goes Dominic. Best schools, all the priests are still coming to dinner, routine abuse by his dad. But alas, in 1943, when Dominic is 18, he is drafted. The kid is in his senior year at Canterbury School, but the country needs all the boys it can to fight those Nazis. Off to six weeks of basic training and into combat, Dominic goes. Dominic will win a Bronze Star Medal for saving a wounded soldier's life on the battlefield in Germany in December of 1944. This, this is the thing that finally shuts his father up. No more criticism. My son, the hero. Dominic says it was the only good thing his father ever said he did. After Dominic returns from war, he will attend Williams College. He'll spend a little time in South America with Gore Vidal and Truman Capote and Anais Nin, which is a delightful story for another day. But Dominic is getting his bearings in the world, and the dawning of the decade of the 1950s will bring the advent of television. 
It is a big deal. And Dominic knows a guy who's working in TV, and Dominic's looking for a job, and he goes to see him. Dude picks up the phone and calls downstairs and says, hey, I have a kid I need you to put to work. And that is how Dominic will land his first gig in show business as the floor manager for the Howdy Doody show. He will work his way up to stage manager for Robert Montgomery. And it's all happening. Dominic is on the ground floor of this breaking medium and will begin to meet and make friends with Grace Kelly, Steve McQueen, Joanne Woodward, Elizabeth Montgomery too, Robert Montgomery's daughter. It's the place to be. Everything's coming up roses in the New York City scene in the early 1950s for Dominic. And in New York City, Dominic's rolling for a few years until one day in late 1953, everything changes. Phone rings one day. Dominic Dunn's college roommate is on the line. Hey, buddy, can you help me out? Got a big favor I need to ask you. My girlfriend is coming in Friday on the train into Hartford, and I'm not going to be able to be there to meet her. When the train comes in, would you mind picking up my sweet, nice girlfriend from the train station? Dominic, nice guy, will meet his college roommate's girlfriend at that train station, and his whole life will change. On that train is Ellen Beatrice Griffin, a few years younger than Dominic, born January 28, 1932, at the Yerba Buena Ranch outside of Tucson, Arizona. Ellen is a bit of an heiress as well. Ellen's father, Thomas F. Griffin, founds the Griffin Wheel Company that will supply wheels for, well, all of the nation's railroads. When we talk about the Yerba Buena Ranch, this is a 30,000-acre piece of land which the Griffin family buys in the 1920s. Ellen is tops in the pedigree department. Ellen attends Miss Porter's school in Farmington, Connecticut. She'll study at Briarcliff College and the University of Arizona as well, where drama courses are of particular interest to her, which is why Ellen is on that train to attend the opening of the play in Hartford. And isn't that nice that my boyfriend set up accommodations for me until he can come in on a later train? Dominic Dunn says it was like a scene from a movie. He just knew. Dominic will bring Ellen back to the family home. She breezes in and his mother turns to Dominic and says, that is the girl you are going to marry. Dominic says it was the most amazing thing. It just happened in six weeks. She was a beauty, an heiress, totally comfortable with who she was. And he never was. There is such a fondness and love to hear Dominic speak of Lenny. That is, Ellen and Lenny are sort of interchangeable. I'll probably use both. A little complication here, though. Even though Dominic long knows that he's gay, he wants nothing more than a conventional upper-class life. Dominic and Lenny are going to marry six months later. Lenny, none the wiser about these leanings. They just seem to fit together. Lenny and Dominic are married April 24th, 1954, ironically enough, on the same day as Peter Lawford and Patricia Kennedy. Dominic is thrilled that their wedding announcement will get the same number of inches in the New York Times, although the Dunn's wedding will take place at Ellen's family home in Arizona. Ellen's mom is not a Dominic fan. 
He has no cash. She thinks he is riding Ellen's coattails, but young love and all that. The newlyweds will settle in New York City. They find a darling rent-controlled apartment with seven rooms near the park, and they're having a marvelous time going to the Stork Club, which is where Dominic will see Billy and Ann Woodward for the first time and is enchanted by the latter. The next year, Billy Woodward will be dead, and it is his wife, Ann, that pulls the trigger. This case will be the inspiration for Dominic's second novel, The Two Mrs. Grenvilles, which we will be talking about this season on Done and Done. Nick and Lenny, the happy couple, do celebrate and mourn children as well in the beginning of their new life together. They have two sons, Griffin and Alexander, are both born in New York. There are two daughters as well that will very sadly die within a week of each's birth. So some mixed blessings about this time. By 1957, work in New York City is going great. And there's this East Coast, West Coast thing that's kind of happening. And Humphrey Bogart wants Dominic to come to Hollywood to work on the TV version of The Petrified Forest. Dominic has some cred in the New York City TV scene. Nick says, sure, I can take a little trip. Heads to California for just a little, just a few weeks helping out. Friends, nothing else will ever be the same. Dominic will attend a party at Humphrey Bogart's house. The night he comes into town where Frank Sinatra sings. And so does Judy Garland. And Lana Turner lives just right next door. Spencer Tracy is in attendance. So is David Niven. Dominic gets home that night, calls Lenny. When he gets home from the party and he says, Honey, you're not even going to believe it out here. We gotta move. So they do. Nick, Lenny, and the two boys where Dominic will work on Playhouse 90 and eventually work himself up the ladder to become a vice president of four-star television, as well as 20th Century Fox. Some happy California news. In 1959, their daughter Dominique is born, and both Dominic and Lenny will say that she is the treasure of their lives. So it's all coming together, right? Dominic, Ellen are an instant success. They know everyone and go everywhere, They give parties, they attend parties, they will eventually settle into a home on Walden Drive, which becomes this epicenter of a whole mix of Hollywood creatures and stars and society people. The Duns are making it happen. Lots more name dropping and content coming up around these themes. But the thing I want you to know is their life is high paced. They're spending a lot of time in the scene. Less time with the kids who all have nannies. Nick and Lenny pop in on their way out to somewhere fabulous every night. Their son Griffin says the kids would line up on the banister and watch people in black tie and a full orchestra dancing in their living room on a Tuesday night. Like it's a rarefied existence for certain. As taken with the scene as he is, even at this time, Dominic knows this cannot last. Ellen is tiring of the lifestyle She's never quite as pretentious or starstruck as Dominic is, but it is all a facade. It's all appearances. They have the proper Christmas cards, and the kids have the right guests at their parties, just like Nick and Lenny do, but it's all a mirage. In 1964, Nick and Lenny will be celebrating their 10-year anniversary and very much inspired by the Cecil Beaton Ascot scene in that year's My Fair Lady. 
the couple will decide to host a black and white ball. Yeah, you heard me right. This is the original black and white ball held in April of 1964, hosted by Nick and Lenny Dunn, not the copycat Truman Capote ball that occurs November 28, 1966. What I want to convey to you here is that Truman directly takes his party of the century idea from Nick and Lenny. The Dunn's black and white ball will just start out as a regular party. Ten-year anniversary party, this is the cost of doing business in Hollywood. But the longer the planning goes on, the more elaborate the ball gets. There are stage designers hired to decorate and build sets, which naturally requires all the furniture to be moved out of the home. Tents are constructed. A dance floor is installed over the swimming pool. Murals are painted on the walls. All the A-listers are invited to attend. Natalie Wood, Loretta Young, Billy Wilder, Tuesday Weld, Dennis Hopper, and his first wife, Brooke Hayward. Everyone. It's a big deal. Dresses black tie for the gentlemen, and the ladies had a choice between black or white ball gowns. And as the list is growing for the party, the Duns, rightfully so, are a little worried about getting shut down by the fire department, so they make a stipulation that there will be no uninvited guests allowed into the party. They put a lockdown on the guest list. Now let's turn up old friend Truman Capote. He's in town with Alvin and Marie Dewey. Alvin Dewey is the Kansas Bureau of Investigations agent who is heavily working on and very much involved into the investigations of the Kansas family murdered in 1959, which begins the idea of Truman's 1966 novel, In Cold Blood. This is two years before the publication of In Cold Blood, but alas, the Deweys are in town, and Truman will beg Nick and Lenny, please let me bring them, and the Duns relent. And Alvin and Marie Dewey have a marvelous time. They're starstruck. They're delighted by this top-tier Hollywood event. And the Deweys turn into quite the centerpiece of the party. Truman has a delightful time, too. Dominic will say Truman was a marvelous dancer. Truman is impressed by the decor, the theme, all of it. And I suppose is taking notes while he's doing his marvelous dancing. Everyone has a terrific time. The party lasts till 4 a.m. Truman Capote sends a lovely follow-up note to the Duns the next day. No one is more surprised than Nick and Lenny Dunn when plans start to be revealed for the 1966 Truman Affair. Capote will say that his black and white ball is a party for Catherine Graham, the publisher of the Washington Post, but no one is fooled. This party is for Truman and Truman alone, and the Duns are thinking, hey, that sounds a lot like our anniversary party hour, black and white ball, and sure enough, it kind of was, and as accommodating as the couple was to Truman and his uninvited guests. The Duns do not receive an invitation to Truman's party two years later. Even the black and white ball could not save the marriage of Nick and Lenny. By the end of the 1960s, Lenny and Nick are on the way home from a party that she didn't want to go to in the first place and will tell Dominic she doesn't want to live like this anymore. By 1969, the couple is divorced. The 1970s will be a mix of highs and lows for Dominic in Hollywood. 
both literally and figuratively. He is becoming a much more regular and intense user of drugs and alcohol, and the road to rock bottom for him really begins at this time. Dominic is producing movies here. Mark Crowley's The Boys in the Band is adapted from the stage into a movie, which is groundbreaking for the culture. Gay men on the movie screen just doing regular human things? Scandal. There is a movie called Panic in Needle Park. This is going to be Al Pacino's breakout role. Dominic's last Hollywood producing gig will be directing Elizabeth Taylor in a film called Ash Wednesday. Elizabeth will tell Nick then, you know this is your last film, right? And Dominic knows he's getting to the end of this part of his life. It's just simply not sustainable. His misuse of substances is really getting him into hot water, not only with the Hollywood establishment, but also into some legal trouble too. Nick is busted with grass coming back from Mexico after visiting Merle Oberon. There are a few good stories about this whole time period that will be coming to you this season. We have a lot to talk about. But I want you to know now this is a bad time. Dominic is deep ending into a drug and alcohol addiction. And by the late 1970s, his 25-year career in show business has ruined him. Maybe he's ruined himself. Dominic will talk of this time and say he knew there was something in him that he hadn't found yet. And if you have that feeling about yourself that there's something else you can do, you should go after it. You should grab it. You should tackle it. You should stick with it because one day it'll come to you. About this period of time in his life, Dominic says it was a wonderful time and a rotten time as the years went on. And talk about listening to that little voice inside. Dominic's little voice is saying, this isn't it. This isn't it. What you're doing with your life, this isn't it. He knows there's something more that he could be getting out of himself than he was. Rock Bottom is going to come to Dominic in 1978, but not without a lucky break that will reveal a little light into that feeling he has about getting more out of himself. In 1978, there's a scandal rocking Hollywood. There's a studio boss named David Bagelman who begins his career as an agent for Paul Newman and Barbara Streisand and for some inexplicable reason has embezzled more than $60,000 from Columbia Pictures throughout the 1970s. Uh, David Bagelman's newest penchant is check forgery. And for much of this Hollywood scandal, Hollywood's closing ranks around him. None of this will ruin Bagelman's career because there's no press coverage. It's a very tight-lipped sort of thing in the business. Everybody's talking about it, but it's not getting printed. Until Kay Graham of the Washington Post sends two of her investigative reporters out to Hollywood to get the skinny on what's happening. There's a launch party for a book one day, and all of Hollywood is there, and Dominic will say, <laughs> in, a, in his life being filled with coincidence, Dominic recognizes one of these investigative reporters from the Washington Post. This guy was roommates with one of his brothers in college, and Nick sets up with these two reporter guys for 10 days as they are working on this story. And no one is more surprised than Dominic Dunn that he gets a charge and excitement that he had lost in the picture business. He hasn't felt like this in years. 
And Dominic says, I could do what these guys are doing. I could do this. I could, I could write. 1978 will bring the crash and burn. Rock bottom period. His struggle with being gay, the lost marriage, the ruin of his name and cachet and power. Dominic will say Hollywood will forgive you anything but failure. And by this time, Dominic is a self-admitted failure. His beloved daughter, Dominique, pays the last month of rent on his apartment because Nick doesn't have the cash. Dominic is going to sell everything he owns, including his West Highland Terrier dog, Alfie. He admits this is terrible later, like, who sells their dog? Nick is going to pack up the few belongings he has left into a beater of a car and head north. Overnight, he changes his whole life. That car breaks down in Oregon at the base of the Cascades Mountains. And here Dominic will find a one-room cabin where he will live, sober and alone for the next six months, writing, writing, reckoning with himself, alone, so alone, really coming to the realization about himself that none of what came before worked out because of him. He had brought it all on himself. He was the creator, the instigator, and the playwright of his own failure. But here in this one-room cabin, the guy who sold the dog just a few months ago feeds the same birds every day. The same birds come back to sing at Dominic and be fed by him. He's beginning to learn the beginning of self-care and trying to write. He doesn't really know how to really author anything yet. So he begins very easily. He writes letters every day, all day. During this time that Nick spends in Oregon, sadly, one of his siblings will die by suicide. And Dominic makes the vow to himself at this point that he will never go out that way, no matter how bad things get. This is him rebuilding, learning, really getting to know that rock bottom territory and figuring out what the second act of his life will be like. Truman Capote, marvelous dancer and letter writer himself, will write to Dominic during this time, which is rather extraordinary because Capote is very much beginning his descent in this period. But Truman writes, Nick, you got to get yourself sorted out and get to New York City. You're needed here. Forget Hollywood. This is the place that you should be. And Nick will move to New York City by the early 1980s. His son Griffin comes to visit Dad's apartment and is horrified. Dad, you can't live here. And Dominic will tell his son, this is what I can afford. Here, Nick will write his first novel, The Winners, which he will tell you was terrible. It's published in 1982, gets horrible reviews. It's a flop. Not many people like that first book. But the one person who does like it is Dunn's first editor, Michael Corda. And Michael Corda really spotlights in another lucky break for Nick the essence of what Nick will get to. Michael Corda really connects for Dominic that there's nothing the public loves more than the rich and famous intersecting with the criminal, which is sort of what 1982's The Winners was about. It covered that check embellishment 
forgery scandal, as well as a few other New York plot lines. This is a moment of the light bulb comes on. Nick knows his future. Yeah, that's it. I'm going to be a writer and this is what I'm going to write about. Back in 1982, not even Dominic could predict how prophetic this reinvention would be. As 1983 will bring the murder of his beloved daughter, Dominique, at the hands of her former intimate partner. This is where we will pick up next week on Done and Done, covering the murder of Dominique and how Dominic begins writing for Vanity Fair and proceeds to begin his second act, which will not only see his realization of becoming a writer, but also becoming a warrior for justice. Thanks, everybody, for listening and sharing your time with me today. I hope to see you back next Monday on the next installment of Done and Done. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.